just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to Spectator's Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by Pete Townsend, a man who'll be familiar to many Spectator readers and fans, myself among them, as the lead guitarist and songwriter for the band The Who. But here he's wearing a different hat. He's just published his first novel, The Age of Anxiety. Pete, welcome. Thank you for having me. Nice to be here. It's taken a while for you to get round to writing a first novel. What was it that I mean, obviously you've had other things going on, but what was it that made you centre in on this now and think... Partly I think it's about having time to to do it and The Who have been touring, but not incessantly. And by The Who, I just mean me and Roger Daltrey, really. We've been doing odd things here and there. And it takes up about three months of the year maximum. So I kept looking ahead at what, what kind of project I would want to do if I started on a clean sheet project, something brand new. So not a revival of Quadrophenia or a theatre show based on Tommy or whatever, but something completely new. And I realised that what I would have to do with this time was to make sure that I had a really rock-solid story to work on because I don't think I can take the usual licence of the rock star, which is that, you know, at the end of Tommy, he walks up the mountain and you don't know where he goes. And at the end of Quadrophenia, he goes out on a rock and it rains. And what happens next? The, the, the idea there is that we leave it to the audience. And I thought, I'm too old now to get away with that. You know, it doesn't end because you have to end it. And I wanted something that was also absolutely rock solid so that I could work on it in an evolutionary way, in an unfolding way. You know, I should probably never have used the word opera because I don't know whether this will be an opera. It may be a song cycle. It may be a reading like Under Milk Wood. I don't know. But I've I've written a libretto based on the book. And writing the libretto based on the book was fantastic because I knew the book by heart and I just wrote this verse and so the book had a function and the 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 idea of writing a novel for me was partly as a function but then partly as I've said a couple of times to uh, in other interviews when you write a novel what you don't expect is is that the story and the characters are going to take on a life of their own and in the end they write themselves <laughs> well, you've said that it's it's jointly conceived as an opera or libretto or whatever else. I mean was that conception there from the beginning or yes. did you think, to start with, you know, I'm going to do a novel? You know, what I started with is in, in the book, you can pull out a series of... It would be helpful if they were in italics, but they're not. In the book, there are about 13 or 19, I don't know how many, maybe somewhere between the descriptions of almost apocalyptic scenarios. But some of them are just of chaotic visions. For example, one is just the description of birds singing, birds dying, ducks quacking and that was rooted in a couple of conversations that I had with people who were just worried about the fact that it was about where have the sparrows gone you know that was that anxiety where are the sparrows gone you know why don't we have sparrows in London anymore so there are about 15 let's say average it out 15 soundscapes this is the stuff of this story this is the guts of it this is the backbone of it which is this young musician 
develops out of the blue. He's performing in a band in a nightclub. He does it as a, it's the way he makes his living, but it's not a particularly good living. He's not hugely successful. But he starts to hear the anxieties, the fears, the distractions, the tension swilling around in the audience that he's playing in. And it distracts him so much that it disables him as an artist. He can't continue to work. And he's encouraged by his godfather, who's the narrator of the book, to write down what he hears. And he does that. And so I have those soundscapes, and that's where the whole thing started, with those essays. What was I going to do then? I was going to realise them as electronic music, possibly as orchestral music, might write it myself, might commission somebody else to do it, have a few songs written to to go in between the soundscapes. And then I realised actually what I really want to make sure is, is that at some point the people understand the whole point of this is not just to tell a story about a young man who's psychic, but the fact that he's is what's going on in the audience that's as important. I started it in 2008, and already there was a financial crash. Terrorism, particularly ISIS, were, were building up in power. There was beginnings of political polarization and manifesting in quite the opposite of what we have in America, which was... His, the fact that you know they had their first black president and now it's exactly the opposite they have their first kind of pink president but that the anxiety that that was happening then was a fairly low level i think people were worried about pollution but i don't think climate change was quite as sharply drawn as it is today and neither i think was social media as effective a disseminating vehicle, but also an interruption and a destructive vehicle in, 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 the, in the way that conversation is disabled. It becomes broken up and it becomes reduced. And one of the things that, that causes that, I think, is a lack of context. So today, the, and by that, sorry, I should, I should be clearer, a lack of context in, the, in, in conversation. For example, when we see somebody trolling somebody else, we have no idea who they are or why they're saying what they say when we see somebody saying something is fabulous we have no idea who they are or where they're from whereas when we you know with the late Deborah for example I would always run to what she wrote because I sort of knew her and always loved what she wrote even though I didn't necessarily agree with all of it but you know she was fiery and she was fun and she was always solid you, you got you knew the context because she was a journalist, and journalism has now been co-opted by by the internet. Now that wasn't the case when I started this project. So do you feel it is a, now an element of your own antennae picking up as Walter does the vibes and channeling them into the book? Yeah, to some extent. And I remember that back in the seventies, I I had a a foresight of was that the right word? I had a premonition. Premonition, yeah, of the internet. I saw it slightly different. One of my advisors at the time, I was working on a project for the Who Called Lifehouse, which was about a world where people lived in virtual reality because the planet was so polluted that they had to be shut away. And in order to be entertained, they would wear these suits where they would be fed and they would be given entertainment. And then the whole system went wrong because the entertainment, the speed at which we wanted the entertainment to be delivered to us was much faster than the speed at which it could be 
be produced. So it was a dystopian story, but it was also, you know, portentous, and it did it did deliver a vision to me of of, of what would be what I didn't get was the wireless bit. I imagined a world covered in wires and tubes. It, it's been something that technology and the way that technology affects communication was something that was drummed into me in my first year at art school in um, 1961. I was 16. It's Marshall McLuhan kind of... Yeah, that really kind of stuff, stuff yeah, yeah. Well, he came a bit later, didn't he? But the, his book did, yeah. The medium is the massage. Did you... I mean, in this book, you know, Walter has these visions. They're sort of oral visions, but... There are a number of people who have sort of visions or varieties of ecstatic experience. There's the elderly rock star, Nick, who's gone completely off his onion and lived wild for years and seen hosts of angels. The narrators had sort of heroin withdrawal visions. I mean, how do those lock together? Do you see there as being a kind of connection between, if you like, borderline insanity or ecstatic experience and creativity? Yes, I do. I think that I think artists definitely see things in a different way. It's important to note that the narrator is an art dealer who deals with outsider artists, and outsider art- artists definitely see things differently to normal people. They, you know, you can see it in their work. So I think I think the the notion that a young man who's had quite a normal upbringing should suddenly in the middle of a concert, you know, at somewhere like Dingwalls playing an old R&B song, should suddenly jack into something that is immensely psychic and, and cerebral and strange and fantastical. You know, you could say drug-induced, you could say alcohol-induced, but that's not my inference. My inference is that this is somebody that's trying to push their creative em- envelope a bit further, a bit further and a bit further, and then finds actually, bang, suddenly they're on to... They're working in another arena, another another manner. And I think in really inspired writing. I mean, G- uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez is pr- probably a good example, but 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 there are many, you know, of, of, of people that have, in a sense, tried to write and open up their their consciousness and they're not necessarily describing the visions that they have but they're describing the visions that they believe they might have if they break through do you know what I mean well, that's a sense what I suppose I've done and how much are we to credit the supernatural aspects to this the sort of mystical luminous aspects and how much is it a sort of metaphor I think it's a mixture of the two. I think the I wanted I wanted to write a story that was a page turner, so I wanted it to be plotted with twists because that always engages me when I, I read a lot of thrillers and crime and John le Carre and stuff like that. And um, Olin Steinhauer is the the modern equivalent of, of le Carre, and uh, and it's the twists that 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 get me through to the end of the book. But I also wanted it to be absolutely authentic. I wanted it to be something that you would believe might be possible and be real. And I, I think everybody that I know knows somebody who is autistic or suffering from Asperger's now, whether they're, whether they're children of, of people that, uh, that, that have had uh, autistic children or they're just people who they know are, are borderline. And, and I think that we probably also know people who believe that they're a psychic, who, who may be or may not be, we all, I, I know somebody, several people, several women who believe that they can see angels. And I tell a story about the psychic power of... I, sometimes when I'm, I'm having difficulty sleeping, my wife Rachel, who's really quite adept and quite psychic and has some 
certainly some extra kind of healing powers, will say to me, do you want me to send you a sleep bubble? And I, and I often kind of go, no, of course I don't need you to send me a bloody sleep bubble. I'll just take more codeine. And she's... Uh, sleep bubbles not being sufficiently so, rock so, and roll. So really. anyway, no, it's not very rock and roll. So I go, yes, darling, that would be lovely, thank you. And my head hits the pillow and I black out. Either she's hypnotising me, or she's really sending me a, a sleep bubble, or maybe I'm just cooperating with her eccentricities. I don't know what, but her sleep bubbles work. So <laughs> it's not always that far from home. And in my own world, my own intuition is extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. And, and I don't talk about it very much because I don't want... You know, we discount intuition as being about coincidence that's the word that has come about to explain it you know when we know somebody's going to knock at the door at a particular time or we know that somebody's going to pass away or be ill or something's going to happen and we're absolutely certain of it and when it happens we we think oh, bloody hell i wish i'd have broadcast that because then everybody would know that i had thought of it before it happened but we only know after the fact so i think we're all rather adept at uh, a level of, of consciousness. Uh, uh, we're adept at jacking into consciousness, but we don't do it because it's not useful. It can actually be, as it is for my hero, disabling. He he doesn't really want this, but he can't stop it. And so the story is about how the people around him help him to harness what's going on for him and stabilise him. Do you think of it, you took call Walter your hero... But, I mean, my reading of the book was very much in some sense that it's Louis's story, that the narrator is the one who's, you know, going to be most surprised at the end. He's got... What made you give Louis that importance in the book as a sort of framing narrator? No, and an unreliable yeah, one yeah no, yeah. The, 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 Louis is an unreliable narrator, but only unreliable in that he, he doesn't really have very, very clear memories of the first half of the story that he's telling. He's telling the story because his partner has said to him that she knows something about his past that he doesn't know. So he's writing the story to get to the point where he can solve the mystery, in a sense. But at the heart of the story is music, is sound, is is the music business, is a bunch of musicians and a bunch of painters and artists and the widow of an artist... The old guy eventually dies. And, of course, a concert at the end. And and I always like to have a concert at the end of my stories. I've written a few that have ended in concerts that I haven't published, but they're, they're not, not as good as this one. I think this one has worked out well. But the concert's also really significant because there are very few concerts that I've done that I've been involved in that I would say, walk off the stage and kind of go, oh, my God, that was an absolute disaster. This is that concert. This concert is a disaster. It's the concert a, of your your my heroes, <laughs> my Walter's Walter's concert is a disaster, and it's a disaster because what's happened is is that the Walter's the young musician, his father realizes his music and they perform it. I don't think I'm giving anything away. There are so many strands in this so many different intertwining stories, but certainly the significance of music in the story is really important. This is my currency. This is my language. This is what I know best of all. I know how it works. I know how it, how it affects people. I know how it affects people even when it fails. You know, um, I went to see Pinocchio at the National 
the puppetry was fantastic, absolutely fantastic. I think the same people that did War Horse did the puppetry, and they now do all kinds of amazing things, but they've become so adept at it. But anyway, I walked out and I thought, wow, you know, and my head was buzzing, 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 buzzing. And what it was buzzing with is what I would have done musically if I'd been given the chance, you know. When you wish upon a star, what? What's that got to do with, you know, Pinocchio? I don't, you know, do you know what I'm saying? It's kind of, and uh, so in a sense, music for me is a dialogue and, and, um, so, in a sense, music for me is a dialogue and, and probably why, you know, when I worked at, F at Faber as an editor, there were a couple of people that I worked with who, who were really absolutely non-musical and worked with and tried to have conversations with, like Harold Pinter, for example, who wouldn't, uh, probably hasn't got a musical bone in his body or didn't have. Whereas his best friend, Simon Gray, who he adored and spent a lot of time with, particularly in the last days of his life, you know, in, in The Smoking Diaries, which he did three of in the end, they're full of music. Whereas what Harold did, what Pinter did, was avoid it. You know, and in Beckett's works, which is so similar to Pinter's in many ways, that there is music in that. So it's almost as though there's a way of using language which is musical and there's a way of using language which is non-musical. And I wanted to make sure that there was music in in the words as well as in the characters and in, and and you constantly would be summoning it up and it, trying to imagine it there will be people that read it who won't have a musical bone in their body and they won't be reading the same book but it's i hope they'll enjoy it i mean you have say one of the characters this character crow who's the kind of fundamental yeah he's a sort of absolute round-headed kind of pub rock cromwellian yeah <laughs> and at one point you have him saying was he hears that his that Walter has sold the rights to his song for an advert? Yeah, and he says something like, "We're not the fucking Who. We haven't sold out. We won't sell out. Yeah, that's we're right. not the Who. I mean, is that a sort of version of your younger self in self-reproach? Or well, of course, the Who sell out album was just brilliant. It was, but it, that was a parody, and it was ironic. You know, it, it was that we didn't sell out. We tried to sell the space on our vinyl for commercials, and nobody wanted to buy any. <laughs> so we we filled them with our own. I do think the song that I wrote, well, the, one of the songs that I wrote for Who Sell Out album, which was I think our third or fourth album, had the most fantastic cover by the photographer David Montgomery, and the guy that does the spitting image puppets was the other guy. They designed this fabulous sleeve of Roger Daltrey in a tub of baked beans and me with a huge oversized Odorono deodorant sticker. And I wrote this beautiful song about a singer who fails an audition with Harold Davison, who was a big entrepreneur at the time, because she's got B.O. <laughs> <laughs> and the last line is, she would have passed the audition if she, only she'd used Odorono. Anyway... So this, this, it was cheeky. I put it in. It's the kind of thing that, that there are fundamentalists in the rock industry and in, the music, in every branch of music. There are, you know, and there are people that have a very na narrow view. What's more important is, is that this particular band is an R&B band and they write some of their own music, but that within a very, very narrow framework. Again, anyone who's a Who fan will find it hard, I think, to get, you know, without snagging on the very first page. And in fact, later on, I think Reprise with Louis says, I don't want to be forgiven, which chimes with that 
the killer line from Barbara O'Reilly, I don't need to be forgiven. Is that something that was in your head when you put that there? Is that a kind of theme for you? Yeah, it must be unconscious. I think, you know, there are only so many buzz lines, aren't there, that you can you can refer to. I mean, mine are very troublesome for sub-editors, you know. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. You know, the kids are all right. It just, you know, they pop up all the time. No, you get royalties for headlines. No, you, very... unfortunately you don't. <laughs> but I think I think a lot of it's unconscious. You're right, though, that's true. I think the thing about about the, the narration is is that he confesses very early that he's writing the book in order to find out what happened. And he's saying at the beginning of telling the story, I don't need to be forgiven. But when we get to the end, we have to draw our own conclusion as to whether he needs to be forgiven or not. And he doesn't seem to know. And it's so it is a bit rock and roll in that we are left as readers to make some kind of decisions for, for our characters in the story. I'm interested in the role of women in the book as well, because for quite a lot of the book, you know, the reader will go, most of the women in this book are super hot, extremely sexually active. You know, they seem to be very much servicing the men in the book. They're not independent in a sense. And that gets sort of slightly turned on its end later in the book. I mean, did you conceive a sort of movement in the book of flipping that, that male gaze? Well, as somebody that's written, you know, written for a male audience, you know, the Who's audience is mainly male and always has been. So I'm very, very used to serving that crowd, you know, young men and old men that live in that macho bubble and have done all their life. And, and I wanted to create female characters that were really solid. And so what actually happened was that... And authentic. I based them on real women that I knew. And hey, guess what? All women are fabulous. This is the, you know, I, I, the couple of them that I picked were not particularly, I didn't see them as being fabulous until I wrote them down. And then I thought, well, actually, you know, they are incredibly strong characters. I think if you write any good character strongly and, and want to serve them properly, they become enticing. I think the idea that I've slipped into creating, you know, servile, subordinate women that are, are serving the sexual needs of the other male characters is disappointing because it's exactly the opposite of what I was hoping to do. And I've, I've, I created storylines too to show that it's not only men who exalt the beauty of women and therefore it ill serve them. Not just because I think men perfectly capable of falling in love with unusually unattractive women and finding in them something beautiful. I'm not going to talk about what's on the fucking inside. I'm talking about what's on the outside. Because women have always been able to do that. You know, been able to look at a man and see somebody handsome when when, when what actually happens is, is his mother says to him, you know, you're an ugly little cunt, you know, or whatever it is that you would say on this programme. You're an ugly little tyke. You're an ugly little tyke. So I just wanted the women to be real and... I've been brought up in the world of rock and roll and a lot of the women around the industry are very glamorous and, and, and powerful. And I'm kind of glad now because, you know, with one of my favourite crushes at the moment, I don't mean sexually, but musically, as one of my favourite artists at the moment is everybody's, is Billie Eilish. And what's so great about her is that she refuses to rise to that 
that preconception that we've had for years, which is that, you know, particularly hip-hop, black hip-hop artists or women of colour still seem to need to get their tits out and to be extremely sexy in order to justify the fact that they're famous and making loads of money. She's just defied that and said, you know, not only that, but I'm going to wear, you know, I'm going to come on stage in a 50-degree heat in, in, in a... In a a festival and uh, wearing a duvet. It means something. It's changing the conversation. And so in a way, that the, the, I'm glad that at the end, I didn't mean to give the book to the fe- one of the female characters, but she has the last word. Yeah. Now, you've given it the title, The Age of Anxiety, which is an Auden line. Is Auden important to you? Is he someone who was an influence on the book? Yeah, I love him. I loved his ordinary poetry. I loved love it. But I didn't come up with the title. My wife came up with the title. I, I I had another working title, and she came up with this title. And I said to her, you know, I can't use it because Auden wrote this fabulous long poem. It's almost about half the thickness, called The Age of Anxiety. In fact, Leonard Bernstein wrote a symphony based on it, or a song cycle. And it's about four people in 1947, after the war, having a conversation, a progressive conversation over a number of weeks where they meet in a bar and they talk about what a mess the world is in. And even though the war is over, where they're going to go next and all of their different issues, you know, some of them are just worried about what kind of haircut to have, somebody else is worried about what cocktail they should drink, and somebody else is worried about where in America they should move to, where in Europe they should move to. So it's a long conversation. It's very, uh, he calls it an eclogue. I'm not quite sure what that means, but that's what he calls it. It's a pastoral poetry, I think. Yeah. So... I went back and I I got halfway through it. I'd read it before when I was younger. And I thought, actually, no, this is fine. You know, I'm quite happy to bring the expression The Age of Anxiety into the present day and to own it. You know, I'm big enough of a celebrity to transfer it into the modern world and for it to be an echo of what he started so on a practical level presumably it means that your amazon rankings won't simply disappear below Auden. <laughs> might displace him actually <laughs> how does it differ writing for the page than for performance i mean there's a lot of music in here but it is you know you're stepping out into essentially a different art form was that nervous making no, I write all the time. You know, I write pages and pages and pages every day of you know, all different kinds of things, essays and diaries and mind farts. And I've got one project called Aimlessness, and every day I try to contribute to it. And it's, it's something that, in, in other words, anything, 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 it doesn't matter what it is. And it's some of my best writing. So I'm writing all the time. But what I did with this first was I constructed a plot. You know, I went to the, the plot website... There is one? Oh, there are many plot websites, yeah. So I decided on the Aristotelian plot, and it, it means that you have to have a, a building story, developing characters, then it comes to a crescendo, and then a gentle epilogue, and then a conclusion, and possibly a closing line. So I had that. I had, that, I had a scheme, a picture of the story before I started to write it. And I really enjoyed writing it. I wrote it very quickly. It took me about three months, so I was writing about three, four, between three, four and ten pages a day. Were you like Louis, sitting in a nice villa somewhere in the I was indeed, South. yeah. <laughs> Towards the end, again, no spoilers, you use an awful, there's a hectic amount of kind of coincidence and very sort of operatic surprise. Was, were you thinking, 
you know, this is going to be an opera, this goddess of operatic thing, I can get away with the, you know, ah, my long-lost daughter, ah, my long-lost parents, ah, my... Sort of that kind of sudden reveal. I didn't... I di- no, I didn't think that. I, I, I didn't think that. I was just writing in a, a kind of a tight bubble. I wanted, the, I wanted strands to draw together suddenly at the end, almost in one song, so that all of the different stories would suddenly resolve in one moment at the end in the concert. I would say, you know, what I said earlier on, I think coincidence is an interesting way of describing what often happens, you know, cosmically when things do coagulate like this. You know, I mean, one of the extraordinary coincidences that I'm dealing with at the moment, which is very inconvenient, is that the Who album, which comes out next month or very soon uh, after the publication of this book, was supposed to be out already in July or June. And they kept putting it back and putting it back and putting it back. And on one day, the date they picked for the release of the album was November the 5th, which was the same day as the album. So I came to my publisher and I said, what are we going to do? And they said, well, it might be good. And I said, no, I can tell you it won't be good because I'll have to do two lots of PR at the same time. I'll be talking about two projects at the same time. OK, we talked about your book. Let's talk about the Who album, you know, and so on. And... But things do sometimes converge, and I do actually believe that things converge because of forces outside of our power. So I think, I kind of think it's okay. I think, I, I, but I do agree. I've taken quite a liberty in the, in unweaving the stories. But I think if you're writing a anything that's scripted with twists, I mean, it's like Gone Girl. It ends. It's very satisfying, and then another little ending starts and that ends and that's very satisfying and then another ending happens and that's very satisfying and then another ending happens and you find out that the the much abused female character has been the engineer of the whole thing all along and that was something that I had in my head I thought if she can get away with it and the book is so much better than the film I think although the film's okay but the book is a really good read um, I can so I also well that twisty thing wasn't it Raymond Chandler who was phoned up as the guy who was directing The Big Sleep and they said, we can't figure out who killed the chauffeur. And he says, I've got no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Pete Townsend, thank you very much for your time. Oh, thanks for having me, Sam. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it. If you hated it, don't, don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk thanks again for listening and please join us for our next episode